Think about the gospel. Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 43 to 45 this morning is what we're going to focus on. Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 45. Uh, As you turn to Acts chapter 2, we're going to continue on in our mini-series in Acts about how the kingdom grows in us and then out into the world. Uh, I've chosen that order intentionally, that it grows in us and then out into the world, because it is possible for the kingdom to grow out into the world but not grow so much in us. People can come to a saving knowledge of Christ and join his church, but not experience the deep and profound transformation that Jesus actually offers to us all in the gospel. And uh, as I've lived within the church and and read people as they've reflected on this, I think the majority of of, of pastors throughout the ages are agreed that this happens uh, when congregations that people are brought into haven't yet experienced that transformation themselves. No one has moved on to maturity, as the author to Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, verse 1. And so therefore, there's no one to lead these new Christians into spiritual adulthood. Uh, I don't want to be a church like that. My desire, and I'm hoping your desire, is that we would be a church where people meet Jesus and mature in Jesus because they can join us in the spiritual adulthood we have all matured into by the work of Christ through faith. I want to be a church where we have learned the ways of Christ in the Bible, a church where we pray not only for those we have disagreements with, but with each other even in our disagreements. A church that turns the other cheek, that listens with empathy and kindness, that forgives that takes ownership of our actions and actually confesses our sins to one another and repents. I want to be a church that, as we talked about last Sunday, is devoted to Jesus' worship and teaching and that then takes those lessons out into the world as we share the gospel of salvation with our neighbors and then welcomes them, truly welcomes them, as we show them the love and hospitality of Jesus. And I hope that's what you all want as well. And that's why this morning we're going to think about this powerful description of the church in Acts 2, verses 43 to 45, which focuses on the way that the kingdom grows into our lives and out into the world by joining Jesus in loving our neighbors. And in these verses, we're going to see how the church was profoundly transformed by Jesus as they learned how to love their neighbors and care for them in real, tangible ways. And to see that, we're going to look at three things Verses 43 to 45. Uh, The first is the desire. We really want to follow Jesus. Second, the example. The apostles demonstrate Jesus' own neighbor love. And then finally, third, the way. How we all can join Jesus in loving our neighbors. Uh, Just like last week, I was excited. This week, I'm excited to talk about this passage. I'm really hoping that what we see this morning will impact you and will give you hope and direction and real practical guidance as it has me this week. Okay, I'm going to read, uh, even though we're focusing on verses 43 to 45, I'm going to start in verse 41 and read through verse 47 for context. We'll pray, and then we'll reflect on how the kingdom grows into our lives and out into the world by joining Jesus in loving our neighbors. Acts 2, starting in verse 41. Let's hear God's word. So those who received his word, that's Peter's sermon, were baptized... And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for this word. And Father, we want to learn how to love our neighbors uh, as Jesus taught us. Uh, We want to be transformed by your word and leave here different and more mature than when we entered. But Lord, we know that unless your spirit blesses us along with your word, that uh, these desires will go unfulfilled. And so we pray that your spirit now would give us minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word, as well as that humility without which no one can understand your truth. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're told at the beginning of verse 43 that awe came upon every soul. And that Greek word translated as awe is most normally translated as fear, though it can mean awe. And I think our translators chose the word awe because in the next part of the sentence, we hear about the wonders and signs that the apostles were doing. And we're going to talk about those in a second, actually. But by translating it as awe, I think we get the picture, at least I have in the past, of the 3,000 or so disciples standing kind of in a circle watching the apostles do amazing things. And I don't mean to be too glib here, but honestly, even in my own head, if you were like me, you kind of picture something like a magic show. Everyone's standing around them. Look at all the cool things that I can do, right? It's like entertainment. That is not correct, Uh, especially since the miraculous powers are mentioned second, not first. Notice all these Christians are in awe and There are signs and wonders being done. And also notice the word there is and, not because. So uh, everyone was in awe and the apostles were doing many signs and wonders. Not they were in awe because the apostles were doing signs and wonders. It's not because, it's and. And so I say all of that to say this. The word we most normally hear translated as awe, we most normally translate as fear. That's the most common translation of this word is fear. And the most common way that word fear is used is in this Hebrew phrase, which you're all probably familiar with, to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord, which means, very simply, to want to follow God. That's what the fear of the Lord means in Scripture. The desire and the actions of following Jesus. And that's what we should understand here. As they devoted themselves to worship and to discipleship, like we thought about last week, These Christians wanted from the depths of their hearts to follow Jesus. They were filled with a deep and profound desire to walk as Jesus walked. Uh, So the picture we should have is not sort of everyone standing around watching the apostles do amazing things. The picture is everyone has this heartfelt desire to make Jesus happy, to hear his word to live out of his word, to walk with him as faithfully and uh, as possible in the world. And as they do that, they see the apostles doing these amazing signs and wonders. And that brings us to our second point, the example of the apostles demonstrating Jesus' neighbor love. So we're told, second half of the sentence, 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So I just have two things to say here. The first is, uh, while there are a bunch of things to say about miraculous gifts in the Bible, and we're going to say more about them as our series goes on, uh, this phrase, signs and wonders, is most normally used to describe God's saving actions. And you can see this in your English Bibles. If you just go to uh, a Bible program on your phone or an online searchable Bible and you type in signs and wonders, you're going to get mostly things from Deuteronomy and Exodus. Uh, so most commonly, it describes God's power in the Exodus as he brings his people into life with him in his kingdom. But it also describes the power of the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, who restores our life with God, grows our life with God, and protects our life with God through his God-like, well, God power. In other words, signs and wonders in the Bible are sort of big, bold ways that Jesus shows his love for us and saves us and gives us life with him. Uh, now I want you to think about all the signs and wonders that Jesus did. All of them, all of them show his love for us and the way that he gives us life in the kingdom of God. Jesus heals the sick. That's a sign and wonder. He gives sight to the blind. He restores the outcast and the unwanted by making them clean and welcoming them into his family, as we saw uh, earlier on in the year with Jesus cleansing uh, the lepers. That's an important one for us today. So is the way that Jesus fed the hungry and blessed relationships with joy. That's the whole point of the turning water to wine in Canaan, is to bless this relationship with joy. Jesus did all of this to show his love for us and to give us his life and to show us that he is the Messiah who became our neighbor in order to love us and care for us and bless us in life with the Father. And like us, the 3,000 disciples, they've been taught a lot of this. Some of them, because of when they were living, may have even remembered seeing Jesus doing some of these acts of neighbor love, some of these signs and wonders. Maybe some of these disciples were there at the feeding of the 5,000 or saw the sun turn to darkness at the cross. And now they see the apostles doing the same kinds of things. In Acts, you'll see the apostles heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, and even raise the dead, like Paul did after he uh, raised Eutychus, after he preached him to death, which is the least he could do. Um, I can't raise you if I preach you to death, so I'm sorry. Uh, you'll just have to enjoy your heavenly home with Jesus. Uh, in other words, the apostles embodied a life of ministry that looked like Jesus's ministry. The apostles are putting hand and feet and word and face to the teachings they gave using the gifts that Jesus had given to them. Now, from there, I have two additional things I want to say about this apostolic ministry of sort of signs and wonders. The first is, I am very convinced biblically that these gifts were temporary. And I say that not only because it seems like only the apostles had these gifts, and actually even then it seems like only some of the apostles had these gifts, not all of them, but also because, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, these apostolic gifts, which were all aimed at showing that the apostles are actually Jesus' representatives, they cease with the death of the apostles. So to talk like Paul for a second, like the apostles themselves, the office of apostle, these gifts were used to lay the foundation 
of the church. But once that foundation is laid, they aren't needed anymore. Uh, unless you think that Jesus is a bad builder and didn't lay the foundation right the first time and needs to kind of keep doing it over and over again. I don't think that about Jesus. I don't think Paul thinks that about Jesus. So the first thing I want to say about these gifts, and I think these were temporary, these were located in the apostles, not even all of them, just some of them. Uh, but that I say that because it leads me to the second thing I want to say, and this is very important for us. It seems like no one else in the church have these gifts either, like you and me. So when, like us, these brothers and sisters in the faith who very much wanted to live for Jesus, who were devoting themselves to Jesus' teaching, when they heard the apostles teach about Jesus' command to love our neighbors as ourselves, to treat each other the way that we want to be treated, to give generously to all without strings attached, and then they see the apostles doing these signs and wonders, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, and all that, these brothers and sisters had to figure out how they could join this ministry of neighbor love without having those same gifts. How do we join Jesus in loving our neighbors when we can't heal at a command? Uh, how do we join Jesus in loving our neighbors when we can't raise the dead or give sight to the blind? How do we love Jesus not using the apostles' gifts because we don't have those, but by using our own ordinary and common gifts of time and money, hands and feet, ears and eyes and hearts and minds that are devoted to Jesus and that can be used to show his love to those around us. And all that then brings me to our last point, the way. And this is our longest point. So for that, let's reread verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. Uh, so I think the power of these verses have been missed because they've been pressed into debates about whether or not there is such a thing as private property or whether Christians should live in a commune. Uh, those debates frustrate me very deeply because I think they miss the very powerful vision of lives that are transformed by Jesus by turning this into an economics issue and then by turning it even further into sort of a downhill slide of, what really counts as a need, and how needful is that need, and what's the floor, right? What is the minimum thing I can do for the person around me? Actually, what it becomes is a way, what's the easiest way for me to say no <laughs> to helping the people around? So just to deal with those very quickly, no, this is not calling us to live in a commune because that is an attempt to escape the world, which Jesus does not call us to do. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 15, when he's, before he goes off to be crucified, this is the final prayer with his disciples, he says to his father, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them safe from the evil one. Because Jesus' goal is for us to love him among our neighbors, to be in the world loving him and loving our neighbors, not apart from them, but among them, by them. And then in terms of private property, just three chapters later, people, Peter will get angry at a couple named Ananias and Sapphira because they sold their property and then they lied about how much of that money they gave to the church. Uh, and in his rebuke of them, Peter says this. I'm going to read it here. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so the point here is that Peter is not saying, hey, you uh, is not saying you had no right to this property. He's saying you had the right to do with it what you wanted. Why did you lie about what you did with it to Jesus? So I want to get all that out of the way so that we can talk about what's really going on here. And I think this is very powerful. So remember the disciples here, they fear the Lord. They want to follow Jesus. They want to mature in the faith. They're learning from the apostles what Jesus wants for them and their life together. They're watching them love their neighbors and uh, the apostles love their neighbors in almost exactly the same way as Jesus did. And now these disciples need to figure out how to do that themselves without having the same kind of gifts as the apostles. And then we're told the disciples were all together and they had all things in common. That word for common is a theological term. To have everything in common means that everyone in the church and everything connected to everyone in the church was regarded as clean. That's a theological term. And to be clean is an Old Testament theological category that means that you are welcomed, that you are treated with respect, that you are seen as loved and useful to God, that you and what you bring with you is invited into your life because God has a place for it with you and wants to use you and what you bring with in his service as a way to bless you and bless other people. This verse is telling us that these Christians learned how to practice loyalty to Jesus by showing his love, not in these amazing, miraculous, sort of spectacular ways, but by the ordinary and yet very powerful gifts of hospitality, bringing people into your life and care, being aware of what's going on and actually showing love for them to everyone and every kind of person that Jesus brought there. It means that they welcomed all the people who worshiped with them and all their neighbors into their lives. And that means, to return to this theme that I've been hammering over and over again since this year began, that the former zealot, which, remember, was a religious terrorist group dedicated to murdering Roman officials, they actually learned to welcome the Roman centurion maybe even the one who saw Jesus crucified and said truly he was the son of God, they learned to welcome him into worship as a brother with kindness and even warmth and joy. The aristocratic women, those who we've looked at previously, who funded most of Jesus' ministry, and the poor beggars who were brought in off the street, they, they believed, they each believed that they were equal members of the church because of Jesus' welcome. And so they talked together in the same room. They were all together. They sat next to each other in worship. They weren't divided out and separated into cliques and classes. They sat next to each other in worship. They greeted each other on the street. They visited each other and they prayed with each other. They weren't offended by each other's presence. They weren't divided from one another. They welcomed each other into their lives. They held each other in common. They treated each other as clean, as valued and loved by Jesus. So rich and poor, black, white, and brown, and their, the Roman Empire extended up into the Britons. So yeah, there would have been white people. There would have been brown people and black people, Jew and Gentile. Actually, just to say this, a lot of the Roman soldiers in Jesus' day were Germanic tribes or Britons. 
So rich and poor, black, white, and brown, Jew and Gentile, Pharisee and Sadducee, Roman tax collector and their slaves, uh, Republican and Democrat, city and rural, Ukrainian Christians, Russian Christians. They all learned how to receive each other into their lives, though they were incredibly different, though there were histories of pain and wounds and incredibly different outlooks on life. They learned to receive each other into their lives, to value each other, to listen to each other, to pray not simply for each other, but with each other. One of the things I've figured out about my ministry that I'm trying to repent of and grow in is I've talked a lot about praying for people who are different than us, which is true. That's biblical. But if you look at the scripture, one of the things that you see is God's people praying with each other in their differences, like Levi the tax collector and Simon the zealot, like the rich aristocratic women from Herod's household, uh, and the people that Herod oppressed in this 3,000 group praying with each other. They learned to listen and pray with each other and to serve each other. And isn't that just implied in the fact that these first 3,000 disciples in the previous verses are identified explicitly as Greek and Roman and Egyptian and Ethiopian? And there were certainly Sadducees and Pharisees in there too. They were all together and they all regarded each other as clean, as welcome, as valued by God and valuable to their life with God as people who needed to be cared for in Jesus' name and loved. And so since they couldn't care for them in the way the apostles could, they couldn't heal their diseases, bring sight to the blind, but they could make sure they ate. They could make sure their kids had birthday presents, Christmas presents. They could make sure their cars could get them to work, that they had a place to live. They could even as they knew each other's needs, see that one of them had a hard week and bless them with a bottle of wine and a nice steak because you know what? That cheers people up and makes them happy. Unless you're a vegan, then you can have a mystery steak. I don't know. Whatever makes you, you know these about each other and you bless them with things that cheer them up. They could assist with date nights for parents. They could babysit for parents of newborns so they could actually get some sleep or they could invite single folks over to their home so that they wouldn't be lonely or invite themselves over to a single folks apartment because, hey, it's actually nice to play host and they could even bring some dessert with them. They had all things in common and they helped each other as anyone had need. Why be reductive about this need? If it's not an economic category, but a category of joyful life with Jesus, it becomes expansive. It doesn't become a way to say no. It becomes a way to say Yes, I can bless you in Jesus' name in this way. And, uh, and they could do this even though it's hard. Even though that person voted for the wrong person or is connected to a group that hurt me. I mean, again, how can you get more maligned than Roman soldiers? So one of the things Herod had, was it Herod or Pontius Pilate? It's Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, there was an uprising before Jesus' uh, ministry began It wasn't an uprising. It was a protest. Sorry, I'm getting my historical dates wrong. It was a protest. They gathered in front of his home. They were protesting their poverty. And Herod had the Roman soldiers go out there with bats with nails in them, and they beat them all to death. Thousands of Jews. 
Roman soldiers are brought into Jesus' church by the people whose family, I'm sure, were butchered by some of them, and they were brought in the same family. Was that easy? No. But Jesus taught them how to show hospitality, welcome, forgiveness, reconciliation, and love in the midst of this incredible, these his, this history of incredible wounds and pain. So when I say even though it's hard, I mean like it could be extremely hard for some people. But I can still show you love. I can still show you hospitality because you know what? I have learned that hospitality from Jesus because he's done it for me. And as I've seen, and as the church learned, as they watched the apostles show the hospitality of Jesus himself by healing Roman soldiers, healing slaves, giving sight to the blind, all of that. As we practice hospitality like Jesus did, our lives are changed. Bitterness is overcome by forgiveness. Defensiveness is overcome by repentance and confession. Distance is overcome by love. And the kingdom grows in our hearts and it grows out into our lives and they're added to our number daily, those who are being saved. And that's why the wealthy among them, the super wealthy in this case, sold what we would call investment properties. That's basically what the word for possessions in verse 45 means. It's a word that describes extra homes, extra farm fields, essentially investment properties. And this would have been needed in this particular area because there was a great famine, as Paul talks about in his letters, and it was extremely poor. Uh, but it wasn't just the wealthy who participated in this. I think this is important to see, too. The word for belongings refers simply to things you own. Shoes, clothing, cars, kids, it refers to toys. They were being sold, too. Because in a cash-poor society, how are you going to take care of people's needs? You were willing to sacrifice for them. Because everyone wanted to join in and actually blessing their neighbor with the kindness of Christ. Everyone wanted to participate as much as they could in actually welcoming each other into their lives, welcoming them into their lives and showing them the love of Christ, not at a distance, but with the hand, their own hands and feet representing Christ himself. And that faithful devotion to hospitality and to neighbor love, it changed this church in Acts. And because of the care these folks showed to those who were different than them, some of them who were at one time even their enemies, as we talked about, because they welcomed them into their homes, as we're going to talk about next Sunday, because they spoke to them and listened to them and shared their burdens and tried to bring them uh, joy and encouragement, even that when that required sacrifice, because they did all of that out of a devotion to Jesus, out of fear to the Lord, the kingdom grew in their lives and it grew out into the world. And the name of Christ was held in honor by everyone. So from there, let me conclude with this. Uh, one day our Lord was approached by a Pharisee, and he asked Jesus who his neighbor was. Some of you might know where I'm going with this. And then Jesus told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a man who was traveling by himself. We don't know who he was. He was beaten and robbed, left exposed, naked, and on the side of the road for dead. And a priest walks by, and he doesn't help. And a Levite walks by, and he doesn't help. And the reason why these two religious leaders don't help is because the man was, Jesus is very clear, nearly dead, which means he's unclean. Not common. Unclean. He's not someone they could welcome into their lives uh, and embrace in common in a way that would still make their lives easy. It would make their lives with Jesus and with Jesus' people much more difficult. 
And so they pass along the side of the road, leaving him for dead. But then a Samaritan walks by, someone who uh, was considered unclean, an enemy of the Jewish people. This Samaritan takes that nearly dead man and clothes him. He binds his wounds. He uses his own money to nurse him back to health. Uh, The Samaritan welcomes him into his life and actually cares for him at great cost and expense to himself. And then Jesus looks at the Pharisee and asks him a truly profound question. So remember, and this was a quote, the Pharisee asked him, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked the Pharisee at the very end of the parable, who do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The Pharisee's answer was, I guess it was the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Because you see, for Jesus, the question is not, who is my neighbor? But will you and I be a neighbor? And here in our passage, we see the profound results of a church that dedicated itself to listening to Jesus and being a neighbor to the people Jesus placed around them using the ordinary but profoundly transformative gifts that he had given to them. My friends, one of the ways that Jesus' kingdom grows in our hearts and out into the world is by us actually showing hospitality and love for those around us, even if they're not like us. And what we see here is this is what, uh, in part, this is what part of the fear of the Lord looks like. It's part of what devotion to Jesus looks like and discipleship looks like to follow Jesus we must walk as he walked as John says in 1 John and Jesus became our neighbor in order to love us so let's follow his example and let's become a neighbor to each other and to those around us in his name amen let's pray together Father, we want the kingdom to grow in our hearts so that it grows out into the world. Uh, We want to be equipped to make mature disciples. And so to that end, please bless us with both the knowledge and the courage and the power of your spirit to be a neighbor to those around us. Uh, Help us to show the hospitality and welcome of Christ to care for one another, to bless one another, to welcome each other as clean in our lives so that as we love each other, as we love our neighbors, we and the world around us would see the love of Jesus in us and know the welcome of Christ's own hospitality and ask us the reason for why we live in such a hope-filled way. Hear us as we speak the gospel and so join us through repentance and faith in Christ and so that together we would grow up into maturity Uh, looking more and more like Jesus, who has loved us with such profound love. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.